trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I trust you're having a wonderful fall day. Assuming you're listening to this, <laughs> you know, any any time near the end of September. I'll tell you what, I, I, I got I to gotta wax poetic here for just a moment. This is the most melancholy time of year for me. It's also my favorite time of year. Let me explain. I love fall. I love the cooler temperatures. I love the color of the leaves changing. And it's happening. It's, it's kicking in all around us. I am just, this is, this is my season. And yet, when it comes, I find myself always so melancholy because, oh, look how beautiful it is. But it's always tinged with it. But it's such a short-lived season. And, you know, I, I just can't, I can't seem to, you know, come to one side or the other. Oh, yes, it's so great. Or, oh, I'm wistful because this means, you know, the hard months of winter are ahead. But I'm enjoying it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm still kind of like, oh, if only it lasted just a little bit longer. This is one of the things I truly loved about uh, the time I spent living in St. George, Utah. Fall was, uh, I would say, probably about uh, three times longer. No, more than that. Probably four times longer than any other place that I've lived. And it, it has to do with how far south it is. It has to do with the altitude and so forth. Those leaves would turn, but they would stay for, I swear, for, for four or five weeks, they'd be hanging. And when they finally did drop, you know, even winter wasn't that bad. Now, the trade-off is in the summer, you know, you, you get to experience a real blast furnace heat. I still think it was probably worth it. Spring was nice, too. It lasted for a long time. Started late February, early March, and, you know, trees are in bloom pretty early on. And just, just lasted forever. But, boy, once the hot months got there... You were committed. And nothing nothing tests your commitment to something as far as, uh, I think I went, when I went down there for a job interview, oh man, a long time ago, rented a, I flew to Vegas, rented a car, and drove up to St. George. And when I stepped out of the car, I noticed the little the thermometer on the car said 112 degrees. I was like, okay, I'm in an air-conditioned car. It's hot out there, but I'm sure it's not that bad. Man, I stepped out of the car, and my first thought was, whew. Don't know if I can do this. <laughs> I'm not sure I can do this. This is really, really hot. Nonetheless, I hope you're having a wonderful day. Got some fun stuff to share with you. Some some not so fun stuff too, but uh, that's less from a desire to, hey, I want to scare you or I want to make you angry and more about, I, I think that uh, there's some things that need some very serious consideration. Now, I'm going to get to that a little bit later on in the show. I don't want to spill my candy in the movie uh, theater lobby, but... There, I think the window of opportunity to really get yourself squared away is closing. And I think it's closing rapidly. And, and I say that from the standpoint, what did they announce over the weekend? Oh, uh, the White House has now created a uh, gun violence prevention czar, Kamala Harris, no less. And her job is going to be to stop gun violence in our, in our country. You can probably imagine how she's going to do that. Now, without going off into the weeds, you know, on gun control right here and now, let's just say that the the polls have not been very kind 
the confidence in Joe Biden is not good. Even mainstream outlets over the weekend were reporting, you know, in a in a poll as to who would likely win in 2024 if it was Trump versus Biden. Trump was clearly coming out the winner. People are not happy with what's happening with the economy, notwithstanding the endless, uh, you know, sheep bleeding Bidenomics. It's good for you. No, it's it's it sucks. We're all feeling the pinch right now. And this means that uh, those in the ruling class who are dependent upon, you know, Biden or whoever, you know, is operating Biden, staying in power. They understand that they are about to face a rout, most likely, if we continue on this, this trajectory, they are likely to face a rout come November 2024. They seem pretty desperate, which leads me to think that Probably not a bad idea to, you know, get yourself squared away. Again, I'll talk more about this coming up. I want to I wanna share some good news, some encouraging news, although it's couched in the idea that uh, we need to acknowledge that medical tyranny was visited upon us during COVID. And this is hard to say. I mean, I have a daughter who's a registered nurse. Um, my, my dad was a pharmacist. I mean, I grew up with the greatest respect for, you know, the medical community and um, having had loved ones who've had health issues and needed surgeries or otherwise, you know, life-saving treatments. I can appreciate the good people who operate within the medical establishment. However, the medical establishment itself, combined with government and combined with people, you know, the public health officials, who seized opportunity when there was fear over, you know, this this pandemic coming out. What they did was unconscionable. And I have a couple of articles I want to share with you that, uh, that really illustrate what has happened to us. I want to start with, uh, I want to start with one from Jeffrey A. Tucker. This is from the Brownstone Institute. And look, maybe I'm just the one who has a hard time letting go of, of what was done, but... Um, you know, without, without bragging, I'm going to tell you, I recognized fairly early on the tyranny that was taking shape. And I refused to participate in it to the best of my ability. Now, this doesn't mean I got away scot-free. At one point, I was working a part-time job where masks were required. And I hated every second of it. It was, you know, it, you do what you got to do sometimes. But that, that cemented in my mind how utterly unnecessary and, and arbitrary it was. Well, everybody will wear a mask and it must be over your nose and all this stuff. And then when the whole vaccine mandates came along and the push, well, it's the unvaccinated that are to blame for everything. I think I, I agree with, with people who made the observation, look, if you did not stand up for the unvaccinated back in 2021, you would not have stood up for the Jews when uh, Hitler was rounding them up and shipping them off to concentration camps. Now, some people think, well, that's unfair. That's Godwin's law. You invoked Hitler. I'm just saying the same attitude, the same indifference, or for that matter, the same animosity towards people who have been identified as the other, right? The, 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 the problem with society. You see that dynamic? That was, that was probably the most disturbing thing that we learned from the whole COVID pandemic is that the tyranny, yeah, it, it originated, I mean, it came from, the orders came from people within the ruling class who were eager to seize power. But the worst part was the enforcement and the carrying forward of that, uh, that awful controlling mindset came from average citizens who thought it was their duty to punish the nonconformists. So again, not to brag, but 
I'm pretty damn proud that I was a nonconformist. Every news story I see that confirms that, whoa, there are some serious questions being asked about some of the after effects of these mRNA vaccines and, and the COVID jab just cements in my mind that it was the best choice, not the easiest choice, but the best choice not to take that stupid jab. And I worry for, for family members who did. I worry for those who lost their jobs or otherwise would have lost their jobs if they didn't. So many people were coerced. And yet the most troubling part is no one in the ruling class, no one who was in authority, no one who helped visit all of that nonsense on our heads has been willing to acknowledge that they were wrong. They just pretend like, oh, well, we did the right thing. And, you know, if only we'd known more. Yes. <laughs> they, they don't want to lose power. But losing power is the least of what needs to happen to them. They need to be sitting in a court of law and be on trial. And if convicted, they need to be put away for many years and possibly even pay, the, you know, for, as a capital offense for the crimes they committed against people. I understand that's very serious talk. Notice I'm not talking about doing it in a vigilante sense. I'm talking they need to answer in a court of law. But they don't. So I've got this article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, The Great Demoralization. And he starts by reminding us that on March 6th of 2020, the mayor of Austin, Texas, canceled the biggest tech and arts trade show in the world, South by Southwest, just a week before hundreds of thousands of people were set to gather in the city. And in an instant, with the stroke of a pen, it was all gone. Hotel reservations, flight plans, performances, exhibitors, all the hopes and dreams of thousands of merchants in town. Economic impact. They say the loss was about $335 million in revenue at least, and that was just to the city alone, not to say anything of the broader impact. Now, this was the beginning of U.S. lockdowns, and it wasn't entirely clear at the time. In fact, Jeffrey Tucker says my own sense was that this calamity would lead to, that would lead to decades of successful lawsuits against the Austin mayors, mayor rather, but he says it turned out that Austin was the test case and the template for the entire nation and the world. And the reason, of course, was COVID, but at that point, the pathogen wasn't even there. The idea was to keep it out of the city, and they did that by locking it all down. This was the beginning of a great demoralization process. We're going to come back to Jeffrey Tucker's article in just a few moments. If you want to read it for yourself, check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Going to jump right back in here to uh, Jeffrey Tucker's article from the Brownstone Institute about the great demoralization. By the way, if this feels like, oh man, Brian, you're picking the scab off again. Oh, don't do this. We were starting to heal. I get it. Look, I would love for this to be healed and behind us too. It's not going to happen though. There can be no healing until we are certain that this kind of thing won't happen again, that this kind of tyranny can't be visited on us again with impunity. And for that to happen, somebody in authority is going to have to give the mea culpa, okay, we, we screwed up. We see what we did wrong. And they either need to be separated from power or they need to be punished criminally because that's how bad this was. 
Now, Jeffrey Tucker writing about the cancellation of South by Southwest says, now, the idea was they were going to keep it out of the city. An incredible sudden fallback to a medieval practice that has nothing to do with modern public health understanding of how a respiratory virus should be handled. Now, at the time, he wrote, in six months, if we are in a recession, unemployment is up, financial markets are wrecked, and people are locked in their homes, we'll wonder why the heck governments chose disease containment over disease mitigation. Then the conspiracy theorists get to work. Now, he says, I was right about the conspiracy theorists, but... He says, I had not anticipated they would turn out to be right about nearly everything. We were being groomed for extended national and global lockdowns. Now, he reminds us, at this point in the trajectory, we already knew the gradient of risk. It was not medically significant for healthy working-age adults, which still, to this day, the CDC does not admit. So the shutdown very likely protected very few, if anyone. The extraordinary edict worthy of a tin-pot dictator of a dark age completely overrode the wishes of all ma- of, of millions, rather, and it was all on the decision of one man, that was Stephen Adler. Now, he's talking about the, the cancellation of South by Southwest. Texas Monthly actually, actually asked the mayor, was the consideration between maintaining that money, 335 million bucks at stake, effectively rolling the dice and doing what you did? You know what Stephen Adler told him? No. We made a decision based on what was in the best health interest for the city, and that is not an easy choice. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, After the shocking cancellation, which overrode property rights and free will, the mayor urged all residents to go out and eat at restaurants and gather and spend money to support the local economy. Now, in this later interview, he explained he had no problem with keeping the city open. He just didn't want people from hither and yon, dirty people, so to speak, to bring a virus with them. So here he was playing the role of Prince Prospero in Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. He was turning the capital city of Texas into a castle in which the elite could hide from the virus, an action that also became a foreshadowing of what was to come, the division of the entire country into clean and dirty populations. And the mayor added a further strange strange comment, saying, I think the spread of the disease here is inevitable. I don't think that closing down South Bay was intended to stop the disease from getting here because it is coming. The assessment of our public health professionals was that we were risking it coming here more quickly or in a greater way with a greater impact. The longer we could put that off, the better the city is. And here we have the flatten the curve thinking at work, says Jeffrey Tucker. Kick the can down the road, postpone, delay herd immunity as long as possible. Yes, everyone will get the bug, but it's always better that it happens later rather than sooner. But why? He asks, we were, we were never told why. Flatten the curve was really just prolong the pain. Keep our overlords in charge as long as possible. Put normal life on hold. Stay safe as long as you can. Now, prolonging the pain might have also have served another surreptitious agenda. Let the working classes, the dirty people, get the bug and bear the burden of herd immunity so that the elites can stay clean and hopefully it'll die out before it gets to the highest echelons. There was indeed a hierarchy of infection. Jeffrey Tucker says, in all these months, no one ever explained to the American public why prolonging the period of non-exposure was always better than meeting the virus sooner, gaining immunity and getting over it. The hospitals around the country were not strained. Indeed, the inexplicable shutdown of medical services for diagnostics and elective surgeries, hospitals in Texas were empty for months. Healthcare spending collapsed. And he says this was the onset of the great demoralization. The message was, 
Your property is not your own. Your events are not yours. Your decisions are subject to our will. We know better than you. You cannot take risks with your own free will. Our judgment is always better than yours. We will override anything about your bodily autonomy and choices that are inconsistent with our perceptions of the common good. There is no restraint on us and every restraint on you. Now, this messaging and this practice is inconsistent with a flourishing human life, which requires the freedom of choice above all else. It also requires the security of property and contracts, and it presumes that if we make plans, those plans cannot be arbitrarily canceled by force by a power outside our control. Now, those are bare minimum presumptions of a civilized society. Anything else leads to barbarism, and that's exactly where Austin, where the Austin decision rather took us. Jeffrey Tucker says, we still don't know precisely who was involved in this rash judgment or on what basis they made it. There was a growing sense in the country at the time that something was going to happen. There had been sporadic use of lockdown powers in the past. Think of the closure of Boston after the bombing in 2013. A year later, the state of Connecticut quarantined two travelers who might have been exposed to Ebola in Africa. But these were the precedents. The coronavirus is driving Americans into unexplored territory. In this case, understanding and accepting the loss of freedom associated with a quarantine. That's what the New York Times wrote March 19th, three days after the Trump press conference that announced two weeks to flatten the curve. Jeffrey Tucker says the experience on a nationwide basis fundamentally undermined the civil liberties and rights that Americans had long taken for granted. It was a shock to everyone, but to young people still in school, it was utter trauma and a moment of mental reprogramming. They learned all the wrong lessons. They are not in charge of their lives. Someone else is. The only way to be is to figure out the system and play along. Now we see epic learning loss, psychological shock, population-wide obesity and substance abuse, a fall in investor confidence, a shrinkage of savings reflecting less interest in the future, and a dramatic decline in public participation in what used to be normal life events, church, theater, museums, fairs, libraries, symphonies, ballets, theme parks, and so on. Attendance in general is down by half, and this is starving these venues of money. Now he says it seems remarkable that this three-and-a-half-year-long war on basic liberty for nearly everyone has come to this, and it shouldn't be a surprise. All ideology aside, you simply cannot maintain, much less cultivate a civilized life when governments, in combination with the commanding heights of media and large corporations, treat their citizens like lab rats in a science experiment. You'll only end up in sucking the essence and vibrancy of the human spirit away, as well as the will to build a good life. In the name of public health, they sapped the will to health. And if you object, they shut you up. And this is still going on daily. He says the ruling class that did this to the country has yet to speak honestly about what transpired. It was their actions that created the current cultural, economic, and social crisis. Their experiment left the country and all of our lives in shambles. We've yet to hear apologies or even basic honesty about any of it. Instead, all we get is more misleading propaganda about how we need another shot that doesn't work. Jeffrey Tucker says history provides many cases of a beaten down, demoralized, increasingly poor and censored majority population being ruled over by an imperious, inhumane, sadistic, privileged and yet tiny ruling class. We just never believed we would become one of those cases. He says the truth of this is so grim and glaring and the likely explanation of what happened so shocking 
that the entire subject is regarded as something of a taboo in public life. There will be no fixing this, he says, no crawling out from under the rubble until we get something from our rulers other than public preening about a job well done in ads sponsored by Pfizer and Moderna. Ooh, that that last sentence, that lands with a sting. Now, I realize, you and I, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go twist their arm until they say uncle? No. There's actually something much more effective that you and I should be doing. And it involves our consent. To the degree that it's possible, we should be withdrawing our consent from any and all of these people involved in foisting this upon us. You can do it at the voting booth, that's true. But you can do it in a lot of other ways as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to uh, kind of springboard off that uh, great commentary from Jeffrey Tucker, which, by the way, is linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show notes for September 25th, 2023. If you're so inclined, click the subscribe button, share your email address with me. I'll send you a copy each day that I do the show. So Barry Brownstein has a terrific essay about how this uh, narrative that was used to justify medical tyranny under COVID is coming apart. In fact, what I love about his is he talks about a noted physician advocates COVID civil disobedience. And the subtitle on this essay is, We Can Regain Our Medical Freedom by Being More Than, in Thoreau's words, Straw or a Lump of Dirt. Famously, at the start of his 1849 essay on on the duty of civil disobedience, Henry David Thoreau observed, that government is best which governs least. Now, Barry Brownstein points out, few lawmakers or politicians during COVID were influenced by Thoreau, who also pointed out that government never furthered any enterprise, but by the alacrity with which it got out of its way. Did government mandates and lockdowns make us safer or less safe during COVID, healthier or less healthy? Now, Thoreau defined the right of revolution as the right to refuse allegiance to and to resist the government when its tyranny or its inefficiency are great and unendurable. Dr. Vinay Prasad is a practicing oncologist and professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. He's one of the foremost practitioners of evidence-based medicine in the world. And he believes the time has come to refuse allegiance and resist the COVID bureaucracy, which resorts to lies. So to those who justify irrational policies, such as masking a toddler, Prasad writes, just because things are bad or the disease is worse than the intervention doesn't mean the intervention helps or should be done. What he's doing here is bringing Frederick Bastiat's classic idea to medicine. Do not ignore consequences. By the way, if you haven't read the essay, That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen, Very eye-opening. It will make you a better thinker to understand those principles. Prasad has become increasingly disturbed at policies made for political, not medical reasons. Barry Brownstein writes recently, responding to a report that N95 masks are being mandated for children enrolled at a Montgomery County school in Maryland, a suburb of D.C., Prasad wrote, only nonviolent resistance can halt irrational public health actors. At this point, note that the original title of Thoreau's theory 
or Thoreau's essay, rather, was Resistance to Civil Government. So the following are the forms of are the forms of nonviolent resistance that Prasad recommends. This is pretty straightforward. He says, even if you or your child are sick, do not test for COVID. Send your child back to school when he's well enough. Stop reporting these illnesses to schools and employers. Complain to your employer about any mandates. Decline any further COVID-19 vaccination unless randomized controlled trials show benefit in your age group. In short, ignore authorities. They don't have your best interests in mind. Prasad adds that this resistance is the only logical course left. It's time to go dark with all COVID data. If enough people don't participate, the irrationality will stop eventually. Now, if Prasad had advocated this in 2020 or 2021, he may have found his board certification subject to disciplinary hearings. But this is 2023, and despite censorship, evidence is mounting and the intellectual climate is changing. Well, isn't all medicine evidence-based medicine? Dr. Prasad would answer, if only. In 2015, with his college colleague, Dr. Adam Sifu, Prasad wrote Ending Medical Reversal. Now, Prasad and Sifu observed, medicine is the application of science. When a scientific theory is disproved, it should happen in a lab or in the equivalent place in clinical science, the controlled clinical tri- trial. It should not be disproved in the world of clinical medicine, where <coughs> excuse me, millions of people may already have been exposed to an ineffective or perhaps even harmful treatment. In their book, Prasad and Sifu wrote, Each of us recalls moments when we realized that what we had told our patients or did for them was wrong. We had promoted an accepted practice that was at best ineffective. Notice the use of the qualifier at best, as often interventions are harmful. Prasad and Sifu estimated as much as 40% of the things doctors do are ineffective. And they give many examples, such as estrogen replacement for postmenopausal women and medical procedures such as stenting open coronary lesions in people with stable angina. Now, if you watch television, you've probably seen the incessant Pfizer ads promoting their COVID treatment drug, Paxlovid. Yet Dr. Prasad tells us that despite the Biden administration's pushing and subsidizing the drug, there's little evidence that the drug works. Even without cronyism showing the way, ineffective and dangerous drugs are not uncommon in the annals of medicine. Until 1992, the drug flacanide was part of the standard care to stabilize patients with irregular heart rhythms. Prasad and Sifu reported a large study called the Cardiac Arrhythmia Suppression Trial, or CAST trial, showed that flacanide, as well as a similar drug, decreased PVCs as expected, but also increased patients' chances of dying. Hmm. Doctors Prasad and Sifu drew the essential conclusion that even the most careful reasoning and the best scientific models don't guarantee an effective clinical treatment. What works in the lab or on a computer or in the head of the smartest researcher doesn't always work in a patient. Yet Prasad and Sifu acknowledge this is a lesson that many physicians and leading researchers still have not really learned. Lack of learning contributed mightily to the devastating policy errors during COVID. Writing years before COVID, Prasad and Sifu observed what has happened in medicine is that the hypothesized treatment is often instituted in millions of people and billions of dollars are spent before adequate research is done. During the pandemic, necessary economic tripwires were disabled when vaccine manufacturers were indemnified from liability for harm caused by their products. That was curious, wasn't it? 
Prasad and Sifu provide timeless insights into why ineffective and dangerous treatments persist without a strong evidence base. They observe the weak evidence base is often ignored because of doctors' faith in mechanistic explanations or studies that were designed to be deceptive by industry. Prasad and Sifu describe the act-now, data-later mindset so common in medicine and in life today. We have a problem. We need a solution. We hear the mantra every day. We need to solve this problem now, 10 minutes ago, yesterday. It's not just in medicine, but everywhere. And Barry Brownstein points out this mindset adopted by millions of Americans is behind every ill-conceived practice instituted during COVID and also behind the increasingly destructive rush to green energy. Now, reversing errors is not easy, Prasad and Sifu explained. It's very hard to accept evidence that something you have done for patients, something that you truly believed was beneficial, is not useful. The evidence is even harder to accept when you've been well compensated for your work. Because of this, the acceptance of medical reversals is never easy, and opposition to them is usually passionate. And so Barry Brownstein says the medical establishment state, or the medical uh, administrative state rather, won't easily change. Yet Thoreau asserted, government can have no pure right over my person and property, but what I concede to it. And Barry Brownstein says we have conceded too much. With our concessions, we've lost our humanity. In Thoreau's words, the mass of men serve the state, not as men mainly, but as machines with their bodies. In most cases, there is no free exercise whatever of the judgment or of the moral sense. But they put themselves on a level with wood and earth and stones and wooden men can perhaps be manufactured that will serve the purpose well. Such command no more respect than men of straw or a lump of dirt. They have the same sort of worth only as horses and dogs. (laughs) I'm sorry uh, sorry to the bureaucrats and the functionaries out there, but uh, that is a very apt description. Barry Brownstein says we can regain our medical freedom by being more than, a, than straw or a lump of dirt. We can expand our comfort zone to go against the herd. He says the time is now to resist pressure from friends and family and to stop obeying authorities. Nonviolent resistance is a viable recourse. Now, I'm probably preaching to the choir. The people who really need to hear this probably would have been scared away within about the first minute of uh, listening to this program. And that doesn't mean they're stupid, by the way. It doesn't mean that they're just a bunch of scaredy cats or, or that they're evil even. They're just, they're just not ready to face unpleasant truths. And let's face it, we've all been there. Look, there are unpleasant truths that even I would rather not face. And I shy away from, oh, I don't know if I want to look in that direction. I guess my point is it's the the process of becoming better informed, the process of finding your way to higher ground, finding your way to the sunlight. We're all at a different place. So the best thing we can do is, number one, start to take action. I think this is very sound advice. Withdraw your consent. Stop obeying people who are not acting in your best interest. Look for the markers left before, you know, left on the trail ahead of you, you know, by people who've walked this path before, be kind enough to leave a few markers of your own for the people who are following in your footsteps. And wherever possible, you know, share what light you have. We just can't force it on people. I know it's a slow, laborious process. I'm convinced, though, this is the way we help each other find our way out of that swamp of misinformation and toward higher ground. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. I've got a couple of articles I want to touch on in the final segment of today's show. I'll get to the article of the day here in just a few minutes, but I want to go back to something I'd mentioned earlier on in the program, and that was, uh, you know, the the White House now has has created this, this Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Oh, boy. You can only imagine what that's going to be. We want to ban high-capacity magazines and weapons of war that have no place on our streets. Now, look, I'm beyond debating this with anybody. If someone tells me, oh, well, I think, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't own an AR-15. I have no, there's nothing to be gained by debating with them. I'm just going to keep quietly, you know, working at my reloading bench and, you know, <laughs> accessorizing and uh, stocking up on spare parts and things like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm done talking. Okay. If, if they're serious about it, you want to come and take it from me? Be my guest. Bring a lunch. Bring friends. Because I'm going to make sure it's a damned long day for you. But, uh, you know, if, if you're not willing to come and do that, then you should probably should go, you know, find somebody else who's willing to engage in that kind of argument. For me, the, the time for talking is over. I'm living my life peacefully. I'm borrowing, or I'm bothering nobody. I am, uh, but I'm not going to play that game. And and a friend who had, had shared this article with me about, you know, the, the new Office of Gun Violence Prevention, my response was, holy crap, they are just determined to do, you know, to do whatever they can, you know, because they know time is short. And his response was, I swear they, they're doing this because they want to do as much damage as possible to everyone's freedom in whatever time remains that they're still in power. I know that sounds like, oh, that's kind of cynical, but I don't think it's wrong. So here's the question. This is an article by Michael Devon on uh, AmericanThinker.com. Is it time to start prepping? You know how I would answer that question, of course. (laughs) But here's the question he begins with. Michael says, how much time do we have left before the Marxists eliminate our constitutional rights and freedoms? Well, he says there may be less time than you imagine. The late summer of 2024 will most likely be the tipping point. So he suggests look for these four bright lines that when crossed will inform you that our republic is on life support and the do not resuscitate order has been signed, notarized, notarized rather, and posted on the defibrillator next to the gurney. So the first one is the presidential nominee of the Marxist-Leninist Lizard Overlord Party will not have gone through the traditional state-by-state primary process and is simply anointed by the... Marxist-Leninist-Lizard-Overlord Convention. Now, possible nominees could include oh, Michelle Obama and Valerie Jarrett. I'm, I'm still thinking that Gavin Newsom is the one that they're going to put up. He would, he would be America's Stalin. Number two, China invades and conquers Taiwan without any significant military intervention from the United States. We will definitely know that Biden, the MLLO's drooling marionette, is still safely in the pay of the Chinese government. Number three, climate hysteria becomes so amped up by the mainstream media that the Marxist-Leninist lizard overlords are forced to declare a national emergency and enforce lockdowns on personal travel. Hey, they're already talking about this. This will also kick off the rationing of energy resources throughout the country based on your personal social credit score, all to save our planet from burning to a crisp in 137 years. 
Number four, gun violence hysteria becomes so amped up by the mainstream media that the Marxist-Leninist lizard overlords are forced to declare a national emergency, kind of like the governor of New Mexico did. They will then begin confiscating all firearms in private hands, all to save our families from being murdered by the law-abiding citizens of this country. Now, these all seem pretty plausible. There's probably a few more scenarios, but uh, did you notice that uh, the Biden administration also has launched its new Green Guard, reminiscent of the Red Guard that Mao had back in his cultural revolution? Young, true believers steeped in environmental dogma and religion out there, and, and they're actually openly posing the question. Maybe we've reached the point ethically where we cannot let uh, breaking the law be a consideration in trying to save the planet. That's pretty much kind of the same ruling that the Jacobins had in the French Revolution. Our cause is so righteous that we cannot be bound by mere laws. Off with their heads, off with their heads. You know, it's it's a pretty scary thing. So, here's the question. What should I do to prepare my family for these difficult times where water, shelter, energy, medicine, and food will be difficult to obtain in the open market? Now, there are a lot of good books on prepping for a national disaster, either weather-related or politically motivated. There's also a lot of poorly written and poorly researched books out there, so be thoughtful in your choices. But here are the essential items you and your family would likely need to address coming tough times. Number one, water sources and water filtration. You'll need a minimum of two gallons of drinking water per soul per day. Number two, shelter. And this should be located one to two hours travel time outside urban and suburban metros. Number three, non-perishable food. You'll need 2,000 calories per soul per day with a healthy ratio of carbs, protein, and fat. Number four, prescription meds. Talk to your doctor and somehow finagle a three-year supply of all your non-perishable meds. By the way, that may be tough. Perishable meds are a more difficult issue to resolve things like insulin. Number five, personal hygiene supplies. Number six, 10 like-minded adults willing to work hard together to defend the shelter and its souls. Number seven, Second Amendment hardware. Never come up empty. Number eight, comms. Multiple backup and power for all communication devices. Number nine, electrical systems and chargers. Solar-powered and multiple redundancy is essential. Number 10, barter stuff, booze, tobacco products, over-the-counter meds, instant coffee, batteries, Bic lighters, barter food. Number 11, metal tools, axes, knives, saws, etc. Number 12, Home Depot stuff. Lumber, screws, nails, tarps, rope, duct tape, glue, gloves, concrete, etc. Number 13, Replacement clothes, shoes, boots, socks, undergarments, hats, and jackets. Number 14, shiny metals. Number 15, transport, trucks, motorcycles, fuel, and spare parts. Now, that can seem like an overwhelming task list. Bringing in other family members and trusted friends, though, to split up the costs and time requirements will lower everyone's anxiety. And I do like this last piece of advice. Start today, one small step at a time. Sorry, I, I know it sounds alarmist. I, I get that. And, and I, I, I hate, you know, oh, chicken little, the sky is falling. But I do think this is a topic that needs very serious consideration. Stuff can change much more quickly than we think. Think how quickly the lockdowns came upon us. 
How many people were caught without diapers, without, you know, food in their freezer? It could be a lot worse, especially if there's, you know, political unrest. So all I'm asking is please consider this. Take the steps now so that you're not at somebody else's mercy. All right, finally, article of the day. This is the one I really would like to encourage you to check out. It's by Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Choosing the best education at the risk of arrest. I don't know if you have heard of the Romaiki family. I hope I'm saying their name correctly. Um, this is a family from Germany who uh, a number of years ago wanted to homeschool their children. The reason was their kids were bullied and scared about the violence they were facing in their local state school in Germany. They chose to homeschool their kids, but the, the German government says that is illegal. You don't get to homeschool your kids. In Germany, it's all government schooling. And apparently their choice to homeschool resulted in a police visit and three of their kids, ages six to nine, hauled off in a police vehicle, vehicle rather, forced to attend the official state school. So facing, this was back in 2006, facing that incident and hefty fines, the Romaikis fled Germany for America in 2008, seeking asylum. Settling in Tennessee, the family continued homeschooling while they fought for protection from their German persecutors. In 2014, the Department of Homeland Security allowed this family to stay in the U.S. under order of supervision and indefinite deferred action status. Well, on September 6th of this year, they went in for their annual immigration visit and were shocked when they were told, you have four weeks to get your passports in order and self-deport to Germany. No prior warning, no explanation other than there's been a change of orders. Now, there's a great lesson here, and I'm going to encourage you, please read Annie's article on this. She really does a magnificent job in in describing it, but how important is your family to you? Would you be willing to risk arrest to do the right thing by your children? I know, I've got this affliction where I don't believe for a second that the German state is in the right here. This family was not being neglectful. They weren't, you know, using their kids as slave labor. Working in the family salt mines. They simply wanted to educate their kids according to what was best for their children. And now they're being sent back to the government that will treat them like criminals for wanting to do so. If you want to be free, if you want your kids to be free, you have got to be committed. Because right now, the opposition is ramping up like never before. This is The Brian Hyde Show.